The following sermon, entitled The Calling of Fathers to Bring Up Their Children, 33rd in the series on the Book of Ephesians, the Blessed Church of Christ, was preached on the evening of November 27, 2022, at Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Redlands, California. If you enjoy listening to our sermons, we encourage you to come worship with us. For more information on upcoming service times and Bible study opportunities, please visit our website at hopeprc.org. Let's open God's Word this evening to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6, we will read the first nine verses and then verses 20 through 25, and do so in connection with the text for tonight's sermon, which will be Ephesians 6, verse 4. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now these are the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God commanded to teach you, that ye might do them in the land whither ye go to possess it. That thou mightest fear the Lord thy God to keep all His statutes and His commandments which I command thee, thou and thy son and thy son's son, all the days of thy life, and that thy days may be prolonged. Hear therefore, O Israel, and observe to do it, that it may be well with thee, and that ye may increase mightily as the Lord God of thy fathers hath promised thee in the land that floweth with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. And thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and on thy gates. Now let's skip to verse 20. And when thy son asketh thee in time to come, saying, What mean the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments which the Lord our God hath commanded you? Then thou shalt say unto thy son, We were Pharaoh's bondmen in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and sore upon Egypt, upon Pharaoh, and upon all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from thence that he might bring us in to give us the land which he sware unto our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as it is this day. And it shall be our righteousness if we observe to do all these commandments before the Lord our God as he hath commanded us. Thus far we read God's Word. The text for this evening's sermon is Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. In our ongoing series, in which we are making our way through the book of Ephesians, we have come to that section in which the Apostle Paul, by inspiration, addresses specific segments of the congregation and gives particular instruction and application to those various groups. Thus far, we have looked at God's calling first for the wives of the congregation, that they submit themselves to their husbands. Next, we considered the calling the corresponding calling of husbands, that they love their wives even as Christ also loved the church. And then last time, we came to that passage that addresses particularly the children of the congregation, which called the children to obey their father and their mother and to honor them. For that is pleasing to our God. But now just as this passage not only addressed wives, but also gave a corresponding calling to husbands. So, having addressed the children of the church, now there is also a corresponding calling for the 
parents, in particular for the fathers of the congregation. And that's what we want to look at tonight. The calling that comes to the fathers that they bring up their children in the Lord. And so tonight we consider Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, using that as our theme. The calling of fathers to bring up their children. This is actually sermon number 33 in our series on the book of Ephesians, The Blessedness of the Church of Christ. I made a mistake in the bulletin. The calling of fathers to bring up their children. First, we'll look at that calling. Second, a word of caution. And then third, the comfort. The calling, the caution, and the comfort. At the outset of this passage, it's important that we note to whom, in particular, this Word of God is addressed. To fathers. For the text reads, and ye fathers provoke not your children, and then what follows? And that's interesting because we might wonder, well, why not mothers? Or why not to parents in general make it broad? Why does he dress specifically the fathers? For after all, are not the mothers the ones who are the keepers at home who spend more time with the children than the fathers? Are not the mothers the ones who have to put up with the bad behavior of the children all day long? Why does this word address specifically to fathers? Well, to put it negatively, it's not excluding mothers from the equation. It's not saying that mothers have no role because the rest of Scripture makes very clear that the mothers have a very important place in the home and in the raising of their children. But nevertheless, this Word of God is addressed to fathers because as the heads of our homes, we are responsible for bringing up our children in the Lord. That as God has given to fathers a particular position within the home, the position of head. For as Ephesians 5, verse 23 taught us, husbands are the head of their wives. And as 1 Timothy 3, verses 4 and 5 teach us, husbands, fathers, are to rule well, that is, to manage their entire household, their family. That is, it's the husband and father who is the head in the home, the God appointed leader. And with that, position comes responsibility. The responsibility to see to it that the children are brought up. That is, it's the fathers in the home who must ultimately give answer to God with regard to what took place in the home. And because of our position as heads, And the responsibility that comes along with that, this word is addressed specifically to fathers. And so fathers, do we recognize that responsibility we have to bring up our children in the Lord? Are we taking that seriously? And do we recognize that this comes first and foremost to us? And that this is our responsibility even when we rely on others to help us in raising our children. For it is legitimate to have others help us in this calling. Really, as fathers, we would be fools if we tried to do it all by ourselves. But it's good that we have others help us in the the primary person who helps us is our help meet that suitable helper who is our wife who does spend more time with the children in the home than we do. But more than that, as fathers, we hire good Christian school teachers to stand in the place of us as parents for eight hours of the day. And what is more, we draw from the church, whether it's the catechism instruction or the, the help of the church community as a whole, It's entirely legitimate. It's good in fact that as fathers, we seek the help, the assistance of others in raising our children. But the point here is, even when we get that help from others, we are still responsible 
before God for the raising of our children. That is, when we have others help us. It's not as though we're relinquishing our duty altogether in that, well, my wife can take care of it, or the school can take care of it, or the church can take care of it, and as long as I send them to the right places, then I don't really have any responsibilities. That's a wrong way of thinking. Because when it comes to what takes place in the home as fathers, we must be aware of what's going on in the home. And we must oversee how our children are being raised in the home even when we are not there. And with respect to the schools, as fathers, we must have a vested interest in our school. As fathers, we are to do everything that we can to be there at parent-teacher conferences, interacting with the teacher, hearing about how it's going with our child. Because we are responsible even when we have others' help. But now if we stop there, we would not be doing justice to the text because it's not just, well, as fathers, you're still responsible even when you have others help you. But in addressing us particularly as fathers, the text is saying you are to be directly involved in this. As fathers, we are to be actively engaged in the raising of our children. So that it's not the case that the, the calling of the head of the home is to bring home the bacon, to be the breadwinner, and really nothing beyond that. But instead, the biblical ideal of a father is one who spends time in the home with his family. He's there with his children. He's actively engaged in instructing them and disciplining them. And thus, it's for good reason that one commentator said this in connection with this passage, quote, the greatest good a father can do for his children is to make time for the welfare of their souls, end quote. Fathers, is that you? Is that me? Insofar as this passage at the very outset exposes a problem, then as fathers we must repent. Confess it as sin before God. Seek forgiveness. And then take concrete measures to be in the home with our families. And to go so far as to ask our wives to hold us accountable to those measures. Because this word is addressed specifically to fathers. But now it's one thing to know to whom this word is addressed. But now we need to get into the, the heart of it. What is the calling that comes to us as fathers? And to put it in general terms, to give the overview first, our calling as fathers, according to this passage, is that we are to carry out the Lord's own work as representatives of Him. And I say that in light of those last three words of the text. Ephesians 6, verse 4, And ye fathers, provoke not your children, to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Of the Lord. And that's really the most important part of the whole passage. And for that reason, before we get into the details, the specifics of the calling, we start with the general overview of our calling to carry out His work. Because this is His work. That's the idea of those Three words of the Lord. The nurture and admonition of the Lord. It's making the Lord, which is Jesus Christ, the subject, the one performing the, the nurturing and the admonishing. This is His work. For He's the one who works in the hearts of our children by His Spirit. He's the one who uses different means to save our children. So it's the Lord Jesus Christ who is 
raising our covenant children. But yet this word does come to fathers. And ye fathers do this and this and this and this on behalf of the Lord. And so, that means for us as fathers, we are therefore servants of Jesus Christ who are to be instruments in His hand for the good of our children. Now that means we are under Jesus Christ. For He is the the ultimate authority. And while He's placed us in a position over our children, nevertheless, we remain under Him. And therefore, in our interactions with our children, in our dealings with our children, in seeking to raise our children, we are to raise them as our Lord Jesus Christ would have them to be raised. In other words, when we come to asking how are we to raise our children, we do not turn to the wicked world and all of their counsel and guidance. Nor do we say, well, this is how my father did it and therefore that must be the way to do it. But we ask, what would the Lord have us to do? For He gives us instruction in His Word and we let that Word be the guide for us with regard to the, the manner in which we raise our children. The, the how of raising children. For we are servants of Jesus Christ. But now we can go a step further with regard to this position that we have as fathers and that this includes the fact that we are really to represent Jesus Christ to our children. For we are Christ's representatives. He is the authority. We are under Christ, but yet in a position over our children. And therefore, as fathers, we are to reflect the love and the mercy of Jesus Christ toward our children. We're to model the character of Christ for them in the way that we treat them and in all of our interactions with them. And the ultimate goal in all of this as fathers is that when our children get older, they are able to look back on their childhood years and see that it was, in fact, Christ. Bringing them up, nurturing them, admonishing them. Is there any higher calling? Is there any loftier goal than that for fathers? To be used as an instrument in Christ's hand for the spiritual good of our children and in such a way that when they get older and look back at all their childhood years, they can say, yes, Christ gave me an earthly father and an earthly mother. But I can now see it was Christ caring for me, bringing me up, and simply using my parents as instruments, as servants in His hand. Fathers, this is so crucial that we see our place as servants of Jesus Christ in the raising of our children. For it's when we recognize this that... Let me back up. It's only when we see this that we will avoid parental laziness and parental selfishness. For when I see I'm a servant of Jesus Christ, I recognize I must represent Christ to my children and raise my children as Christ would have them raised. But now having looked at that general overview, what's our calling to represent Christ to our children, to raise them on behalf of Christ? We do need to get into the specifics because this passage does provide us those specifics with regard to the manner in which we as fathers and parents in general are to raise our children. That's really the heart of the passage. We read in verse 4, And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, and now this, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And there are three 
key words in that section in the middle of the verse. Bring them up. Nurture. And admonition. And each one teaches us an important part of parenting. First, as parents, we are to nourish. To nourish our children. And I say that in light of those words, but bring them up. Because those words, but bring them up, mean to nourish. In fact, this is the very same word that's used in the immediate context in chapter 5, verse 29, which calls husbands to nourish and cherish their wife. Bring them up is the same word. That is, as fathers, as parents, we are to nourish our children in the sense of giving them everything they need to grow and to flourish. And this is to be done in love for our children. For this word, bring them up. This word nourish implies a certain level of of tenderness towards our children. As Calvin put it in his commentary, the idea of this is that regarding children is, quote, let them be fondly cherished. End quote. Fondly cherished. And that means as fathers, we are to give to our children all that they stand in need of. Not just physically, not just emotionally, but especially spiritually. We're to see to it that they are here in church listening to the preaching. We are to lead our families and especially our children in their devotional life. Not just reading the passage, closing the Bible, and moving on, but explaining God's Word. Giving instruction in God's Word. We're to help them learn their catechism and their memory work. All this is a part of nourishing our children. And the heart and center of that is setting Christ before them. Because is that not how we are nourished? As adults? Is that not how we grow and flourish? It's by faith in Jesus Christ. Christ is our spiritual meat and drink. We are nourished as we partake of Him. And the same applies to our children. They're going to grow up spiritually. They're going to be nourished spiritually only as they have Christ set before them. And therefore, that's to be the most important part of their spiritual diet. As fathers, we must give our children large and regular helpings of Christ and Him crucified. So the first specific that comes to us as fathers is that we are to nourish our children. Bring them up. Second, we are to discipline them. And I say that in light of the second word there. But bring them up in the nurture. And the idea of that word nurture is really to discipline them. And we can see that when we look at how this particular Greek term is used elsewhere in the New Testament Scriptures. For example, this same word is used in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 and 6, where we read, And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not the chastening. Same word. Chastening of the Lord. Nor faint when thou art rebuked of Him. For whom the Lord loveth, He chasteneth. Same word. And scourgeth every son whom He receiveth. Thus, a part of our calling is to discipline our children. That is, when our children sin against God, when they manifest that foolishness that's bound up in their heart in clear disobedience, when our children go astray, God calls us to discipline them. That is to spank them. In order to correct them. That's the idea here. And understand that that sort of correction, that sort of discipline is is not being cruel to our children. There are some who would view it that way, but it's not. Really, a good swift spanking is the merciful form of punishment because when we spank our children, the pain 
lasts only a moment if we ground them, if we revoke some privilege while the pain is drawn out for a week or whatever that time period may be. We're prolonging the pain in that case. And what is more, when we give our children a spanking, when the pain's done so quickly, that, that allows for, for tender interactions to happen right away afterwards. And so it's not cruel, it's merciful because it serves the spiritual good of our children. And our purpose in disciplining them is to point them again to Christ. For you see, the purpose of discipline is not simply to communicate that what you did, my son, or what you did, my daughter, is wrong. But the discipline is to be in the service of the Gospel. So that the most important part of the the act of discipline is not the the spanking itself, but it's what comes after the spanking. Because the purpose is to help our children to see that what I did was wrong and that therefore I need Jesus Christ. And as parents were to, to lead them so that they cry out to God asking for forgiveness. So that the most important part is after the spanking is finished, making clear that they making sure that it's clear to them that they understand it's not just that you disobeyed dad and mom, but it's that you sinned against God. And when they understand that, then you then help them to pray. You maybe give them the very words that they need. Father, forgive me for my sin of disobeying mom or dad. Hear my prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen. If it's that simple even. It can be that simple even. So even our discipline is with a view to bringing them to Christ. So our calling as fathers and parents in general is first that we nourish our children, bring them up. Second, that we discipline our children, that is, nurture them. And third, that we instruct our children instruct our children. For that's the idea of that word admonition. That word admonition has in view all that we say as parents to our children. And that can take many different forms. It can take the form of encouragement. It can take the form of comfort. It can take the form of instruction or rebuke or a warning. But it all has to do with what comes out of our mouths. And what must be the thread that ties them all together is that there's teaching taking place. There's instruction taking place. Because while certain things are clear to us as parents, remember, our children do not know everything that we know as parents. They must be taught. And that means putting things in the simplest, clearest possible way. Remembering that they too must learn everything that we have come to learn. And as parents, we are to teach, we are to instruct at every opportunity and in every possible subject. As parents, we are to teach our children at every opportunity. And we say that in light of the passage that we read earlier. Deuteronomy chapter 6, for example, in verse 7, addresses parents and says, And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and thou shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by thy way, by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. Anytime you have opportunity, anytime there's a, a window here or a door there, you go through it, you use it to teach your children. Teach them at every opportunity. And be sure you also teach them in every subject. For that's the example we have from Solomon and his instruction in the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is really the word of a father to his son. And is there any subject that is not treated in the book of Proverbs? You go through and you will find it touches on almost every facet of life from the value of God's word to self-control 
from marriage and sex to how we are to use our tongues, from friendships to laziness and so many other aspects of our lives. Our instruction is to be comprehensive. We're to touch on every possible subject. Now again, the heart and center of this is teaching them about Jesus Christ. For this is the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And is that not what we see in the book of Proverbs? What's the heart and center of the book of Proverbs? It's chapter 8. Where Solomon devotes the entire chapter to setting forth God's wisdom as it's revealed to us in Jesus Christ. And so as parents, we're to set before them Jesus Christ, for He is our wisdom. And so in all three aspects, the nourishing them, the disciplining them, and the teaching them, the instructing them, we are to remember that we are servants of Jesus Christ who point our children to Jesus Christ. For He alone can work in their hearts. He alone can change their behavior. It's true of us. Not one of us can begin to keep God's law to perform the duties of the law apart from faith in Jesus Christ. Why would it be any different with our children? And thus, our parenting is to be Christ-centered, to be Christ-focused. And it's in light of that that we see the wisdom of one commentator whom I paraphrase, who said, the heart of parenting is to bring the hearts of our children to the heart of Jesus Christ. The heart of parenting is to bring the hearts of our children to the heart of Jesus Christ. That parents, and especially fathers, is our calling. But now along with this calling, there's a caution. Because there's not just the positive instruction, bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, but before that in even there's a negative prohibition, a word of warning, a word of caution that comes to us. Verse 4, Andy fathers, provoke not your children to wrath. That, the idea of that word is provoke. Provoke is do not rouse them to anger. Do not exasperate your children. And Colossians 3, verse 21, adds a significant thought when it says almost the same thing, but something slightly more. When it says, Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. That is, lest they become spiritless, lest you break their spirit, lest they lose heart so that they have no motivation in life. Fathers, here's a warning. A caution. Do not provoke your children to wrath. But what does that mean? Well, taken together, these verses are telling us that as parents, we are not to be the occasion for unnecessary anger and bitterness in our children. That is, we are not to incite our children to unnecessary anger and bitterness. And that word unnecessary is important. Because by adding that word unnecessary, we are being sure to have a right understanding over against the wrong understanding of some. There are some who read this passage and says, provoke not your children to wrath and conclude that a parent may not do anything that would ever make his child angry. That would ever be displeasing to his child. But yet I trust you recognize that cannot be the proper interpretation. For after all, we've looked at the positive calling and the positive calling includes that we discipline our children when they are sinful. And 
if we're honest with ourselves and honest with respect to our children, they have an old man of sin in them. They are not going to like that discipline. At least not right away. They might get angry with us when we tell them you may not do this or you may not do that. But yet that is a part of our calling. So the idea of the passage is not avoid anything and everything that could possibly make your child angry. But instead, do not be the occasion for unnecessary anger and bitterness. And the point is, avoid sinful behavior as a parent. The passage is teaching us that in our dealings with our children, we are to avoid anything that's sinful, anything that's out of harmony with Christ's bringing up of our children that would become the occasion for our children to become angry. If we ask why is this forbidden? Why this caution? Well again, it goes back to Christ. And the fact that we are to represent Him. For you see, Christ does not provoke the little lambs wrath. And therefore, as fathers, as parents, we must not provoke the little lambs to wrath and anger by our own sinful treatment and sinful interactions with them as parents. But now that's stating it very generally. And we need to become more specific. We need to see the different ways in which we as parents can be guilty of provoking our children to wrath. And to do that, I would like to introduce to you, by name, ten fathers who serve as illustrations of how we become guilty of this sin. And these are ten fathers, not mothers, because one can make a strong argument that as fathers, we are more prone to this than our wives. And likely, that's also part of the reason why the passage is addressed to fathers and not to parents generally because of how inclined we as fathers are to this sin. So let's look at ten fathers who are negative examples. First, meet Tom who provokes his children to anger by his unjust demands. Unjust demands. For Tom is that father who simply expects way, way too much of his children. Tom is that father who has an idealistic view of parenting and how it should go and thus makes unreasonable demands of his children. And he does this partly out of ignorance because he does not understand the whole process of maturation. And thus he expects of a six-year-old what what a reasonable parent would only ever expect of a 12-year-old. So it's partly out of ignorance, but the root of it is really his pride. Because he wants his children to be the best and he views parenting as a sort of competition almost among the other parents. You see, Tom provokes his children to wrath in this way. Because he's expecting of them things they cannot do. And is there anything more frustrating? Is there anything more discouraging for a child than to be given expectations that are impossible for him to meet? Second, meet Dick, who provokes his children to wrath by being overly protective. In many ways, Dick is the exact opposite of Tom, for Tom expects too much of his children. Dick does not expect nearly enough from his children. For Dick is that father who coddles his children, who spoils his children. 
He's the one who shields them from every possible danger and really gives to His children no freedom, including the freedom to make a mistake from time to time. And He thinks He's doing right. Because after all, isn't love for your children that you, you guard them, you defend them, you, you keep bad things from happening to them? So He's overly protective. But this too provokes children to wrath. Not right away. But when the children get older and they start to see I am incapable of doing other things, of certain things that all of my peers are able to do. Never learned how to do this. Never learned how to do that so that this child feels that with every aspect of life he still has his training wheels on while all the other children have gotten rid of their training wheels a long time ago. The child feels like a bird that's never developed the wing strength to fly on his own, and thus the child is provoked to wrath. Third, meet Harry. Harry provokes his children to wrath by his excessive discipline. For Harry is that father who for every single transgression, great and small, disciplines his children in the most rigorous manner possible with shouting and yelling at them and then hauling out his belt or the two-by-four to administer the pain. And then when he's done with that, he simply leaves the child to sit there and cry and to reel in his or her pain. And Harry does this because he mistakenly thinks, well, this is how you you teach a child. If you give him a good looking enough times, he'll learn. He'll, He'll eventually figure it out. And it's never dawned on him that he's expecting the law to change behavior, which the law cannot possibly do. And this provokes his children to wrath. Because the children themselves can see the punishment does not meet the crime. Yes, I might have been wrong in what I did, but I did not deserve what I got from my father. Fourth, meet Fred. Fred provokes his children to wrath by being overly permissive. So that Fred is the exact opposite of Harry. Fred is that father who really never disciplines his children, who lets them get away with anything and everything. And that's partly because he's the permissive father. There's very few rules and restrictions. Fred's children are the children who get to watch whatever they want on television. And Fred does this partly because of parental laziness but also because of the mistaken notion that this is what love looks like. If you love your child, you you let them have what they want. But this too provokes the children to anger. But again, not right away. Most children in the moment think Fred is the greatest father ever. But then they grow And by God's grace, they see that there are certain parts of their life that are sinful and they start to see that I developed these sinful habits when I was a child because my father let me get away with them. And now that I'm older, I want to put away this sin, but I can't. It has such a hold on me. And if only my father had stopped me If only he had pointed out what you're doing is wrong, my son. He begins to resent his father for being overly permissive because he sees that that was not good for me spiritually. Fifth, meet George. 
George provokes his children by his inconsistent discipline. George is the father who oscillates between being a strict disciplinarian like Harry and an overly permissive father like Fred. And the explanation here is that his discipline is tied to his mood. So that if George is in a good mood, well, the children can get away with just about anything. But if George is in a foul mood, the children better watch out because there is not one thing they can do that's right in his eyes. And this provokes the children to wrath. Because there's no consistency. They never know what to expect from their father. Whether they need to walk on eggshells tiptoeing around him or whether he's going to be okay with this or that. It's provoking the child to wrath. And that brings us to another father. Sixth, meet Joe. Who provokes his children by his parental inconsistency. Like George, he's inconsistent, but in a different way. Namely, there's an inconsistency in what Joe expects of his children and how Joe himself lives his life. Joe is that father who might as well be honest with his children and simply tell them, do as I say, but not as I do. And that provokes the child to wrath. Because they see through the hypocrisy of it all. And now it would be one thing if Joe was striving to live a godly life and fell from time to time and then would confess his sin to his children and say, I was wrong in what I did that. That's one thing. But Joe is that father who, from the child's point of view, doesn't even seem to try from a spiritual point of view. Tells him, you must do this and you must do that. But the father never makes any effort in those areas of his life. And it provokes the child to wrath. Seventh, meet Jacob, who provokes his children to wrath by his sinful favoritism. And this is the one example we're not using just a made-up silly name. We're using a biblical name, aren't we? For Jacob was guilty of sinful favoritism in that he clearly loved Joseph and then Benjamin more than all of his other brothers and he showed it. The other brothers were painstakingly aware that they were not the favorite sons. And we too can be tempted to the same thing. Because it can happen that a certain child has a personality that's more like our own as parents, or a certain child just has a, a more pleasant demeanor. And we start to gravitate toward that particular child. But this too provokes the children to wrath and anger. This too leaves the child discouraged, even as it did with Jacob's other sons. It provokes them to a sinful envy and jealousy. It was not necessary. Eighth, meet Martin. Martin provokes his children by failing to see the uniqueness of each child. Martin is therefore the exact opposite of a Jacob. Jacob sees the distinction and wrongly gravitates towards a certain distinction. Martin views all the children he has as exactly the same. And therefore, he has the exact same expectations for every single child. And he lets them know that. So that he tells little Susie, you should be able to do this, or you should be able to do that because your brother Johnny was able to do it when he was your age. And Martin does this thinking, well, this is, this is being fair. I need to be equal in all my dealings, in all my interactions with my children. But this provokes a child to wrath because even the children can recognize I'm not my brother. 
And I'm not my sister. God made me unique. I'm not able to play the piano as well as so-and-so. I'm not able to do this sport as well as my other sibling. And thus, failing to see what makes our children unique also provokes them to anger just as much as sinful favoritism. We're going through ten fathers who are negative examples and a number of them are opposites. And we've come to the last two. Nine. Meat bearing. And he provokes his children to anger by his parental neglect. For Barry is that father who never has the time of day for his children. He never spends any quality time with them. And this is true for Barry, partly because of how busy he is. And really, he's too busy. But also partly because of his own sinful laziness and selfishness. So that when he does get home after a very long day of work, the only thing he wants to do is just sit there and relax and tell the children, go away, I just need some time alone. And that provokes the children to anger. Because the child is left thinking, dad has time for his employer. Dad has time for all these other things and for all these other people, but he never has time for me. And the child is left discouraged. And that brings us to the tenth example of a father who provokes his children to wrath, and that's Frank. Frank provokes his children to wrath by his abusive behavior. For Frank is that father who towards most of his children is demeaning, and violent. And that he's always criticizing his children. He's always pointing out all of their faults. He calls them names. He mocks them. And he squashes whatever dreams and aspirations they express. And when he gets worked up, he becomes violent. He throws his weight around the home. And go so far as to beat his children. At least most of them. Because there's one other child that he treats in a different manner that's far more destructive. And that he manipulates her so that he can abuse her sexually. And I do not even need to get into how this provokes the child to wrath. Instead, a different word is needed here. And that is if anyone in the congregation ever hears of such sinful behavior from a father, from a mother, from anyone, it must be reported. Do not try to hide it. For the children of the congregation, children, if someone who is older than you, some adult in your life, does things to you that make you very, very uncomfortable, they seem like things that a, an adult should not be doing to a child. Tell someone. Tell your teacher at school. Tell your pastor, tell an elder, tell anyone. And we will help you. And if there is anyone in the congregation who is guilty of this sin, who's caught up in it at this time, I warn you to flee from the wrath to come. To repent of this sin. For if you persist in this sin, 
it would have been better that a millstone was hung around your neck and you were cast into a sea. Do not be afraid. But now even if as fathers, we can stand before God and honestly say, I'm not a Frank. Do you still identify with the other nine fathers? Do you recognize yourself in some of those portraits, those ugly portraits that we painted? I know I do. And no doubt every parent here to one degree or another is guilty of some of the very sins or some combination of those sins that we have described. And thus, if this is where the sermon ended, we would walk away completely discouraged. But this is not the ending of the sermon because though this passage does indeed expose our sins, there's still comfort for us. And as parents, it's the comfort of the Gospel. It's the comfort that there is forgiveness for our failures, for our sins as parents. For Jesus Christ came into this world to take our sins upon Himself. And that includes all of the times that we have provoked our children to wrath by our sinful behavior, by our sinful treatment of our children as parents. He bore the punishment that we deserve. He bore the wrath of God Himself against our sins. And because Christ did that, when we as parents, having heard a sermon like tonight's, cry out to God saying, I have sinned in this way and in that way as a father and as a mother, we can be sure, we can be confident that there is mercy to be found, that there's forgiveness for those sins. And so let us go to Him in true repentance. And let's make sure that at least at times we bring our children with us when we do that. And by that I mean let it be that our children see and hear us making that prayer. For if we have sinned against our children in provoking them to wrath, then we are to go to our children and to tell our children, I have sinned against you. I am sorry for what I have done to you. And then we let them hear our own prayer to God asking that God forgive us. And it's so important that we do this, parents. And do not think that it's somehow going to bring you down in the eyes of your children in a wrong way. Because the reality is, this, is that when our children see us get on our knees and asking God to forgive us of our sins as parents, there is nothing that shows them more clearly that we see ourselves as servants of Jesus Christ as under our Savior. So the comfort for parents is that there's forgiveness. But the comfort for parents also includes that there is strength from Christ to heed this Word, to serve our Savior. For our Savior does not leave us to ourselves in this calling. He does not leave us to our own strength and our own ability to perform this crucially important task. But He sends His own Spirit 
to live and to dwell within our hearts, to give us the strength that we need so that we can make a small beginning in serving God in this way by nourishing and disciplining and instructing our children as servants of Jesus Christ. There's also the encouragement that our Savior makes use of weak and sinful means. For not once has there been a sinless parent who has walked the face of this earth. But yet, God has been pleased to continue His covenant in the line of generations. He's continued to save His children, His elect children from the children of believers. And that He overcomes our weaknesses to accomplish His own will. And what a comfort that is. Because it means it does not ultimately depend on me. And what an encouragement this is to strive to be faithful as parents, knowing God's Word to us in Proverbs 22, verse 6, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. God uses weak and sinful means. And that's comforting for parents. But now parents are not the only ones who need comfort tonight, are we? There needs to be a word of comfort for the children, whether currently children or children many years ago. Because sadly, it can happen even in the church. that a child grows up under a parent whose besetting sin is that he or she provokes his children to wrath. And what wounds that creates. So that even if we are now an adult and it's only a memory for us, those scars are still there. And maybe that was what you were thinking about the whole time we were going through the list of ten. It was not so much about your calling, responsibility as a parent, and what not to do, but all you could think about is that's my dad. Or that's another person in my life who did the exact same things to me. And this is so damaging. This is so destructive. Because when, as a child, whether presently or in the past, we had such an experience, it makes it almost impossible to address our God as Father. Because what happens is that we project our experience with our earthly Father onto our heavenly Father. And because we've been sinned against so many times by our earthly parents, we begin to think there is no way I can trust this heavenly Father. There's no way I'm going to draw near to one who has revealed Himself as Father. So that we view our Heavenly Father through the lens of our earthly Father or whoever it was. For all of those who've had such a childhood, Be assured that your Heavenly Father is not like any of those ten. For your Heavenly Father is neither abusive nor neglectful. 
But He's gracious. Merciful. Slow to anger. And He will never leave you. Nor forsake you. And your Heavenly Father does not play favorites. For He gives the blessings of salvation freely to all of His children. And insofar as our lot in life is different from another child of God, that's because He sees that we're unique. For He's created each one of us uniquely. And He deals with us accordingly. And your Heavenly Father is not inconsistent. For He's the God who never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And when your Heavenly Father does discipline you, it's never too much. It's never too little. But it's just the right chastisement at just the right time. Your Heavenly Father loves you. And He's the one who perfectly nourishes, disciplines, and instructs. You are fondly cherished of your Heavenly Father. And therefore, you can trust Him. And you have every reason to draw near to Him. That is our comfort. Amen. Father in Heaven, we thank Thee for Thy Word. Apply it to our hearts. Cause it to bear fruit in our lives. And help us to take comfort in the good news of the Gospel that there is salvation in Jesus Christ. Hear this prayer for His sake. Amen.